0: It seems we're all pressed for time, and that puts a strain on spending quality time with loved ones. HelloFresh has freed up time for me to relax more and hang out with people I love. With HelloFresh, I get fresh ingredients delivered to my house and easy-to-follow instructions that allow me to put dinner on the table in about 30 minutes. With over 50 menu items to choose from, my family and I are always trying something new like the chicken sausage and sweet potato soup, which is perfect for cozy winter nights. HelloFresh has meal options like calorie smart, vegetarian, gourmet, and quick and easy meals that are ready in less than 30 minutes. I recently made the chicken sausage pasta primavera with my daughter, and we loved it. The lemon parm sauce and bell peppers made the dish so tasty, it's now in our regular weekly meal rotation. Go to hellofresh.com slash murderish14 and use code MURDERISH14 for up to 14 free meals and 3 free gifts. That's HelloFresh.com slash MURDERISH14 and use code MURDERISH14 for up to 14 free meals and 3 free gifts. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. When the news broke in September of 2014 that 43 students went missing outside Iguala, Mexico, everyone was baffled. How could dozens of people simply vanish? In the hours leading up to the disappearance, the students had left the rural town of Ayotzinapa to attend a Mexico City protest. The case, referred to as the Ayotzinapa 43, received international press coverage and brought to light some stark realities about Mexico. What led to the mass disappearance? Why and how did 43 people go missing? This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the case of the Ayotzinapa 43. This case takes us to Ayotzinapa, a small town in southwestern Mexico. The town, which is located in the Mexican state of Guerrero, is home to the Ayotzinapa Rural Teachers College, or the Escuela Normal Rural de Ayotzinapa. The all-male university trains high school graduates to become youth educators in rural or indigenous areas. Since the 1920s, the school has helped usher education into rural towns. Most schools like Ayotzinapa originated in cities, but more recently sprouted up in Mexico's countryside. This type of university, known as a normal school, sets teaching standards or norms, hence the name. Members of the student body are commonly referred to as normalistas. Gaining admission to the Ayotzinapa Rural Teachers College is very competitive. Hundreds of students hoping for a better future apply each year but only 140 students are accepted. Most of the normalistas come from communities like the ones they hope to teach. Their families are campesinos, the term to describe indigenous farmers who are often impoverished and lack access to education. The school also has a long history of social activism. Former principal Jose Luis Hernandez Rivera was quoted in the New York Times as saying, it has a lineage of fighting to be heard. This school has kept up its fight. Five hours northwest of Ayotzinapa is the historic city of Iguala. It is considered a major thoroughfare on the way to Mexico City, with easy access to the Mexico city Alcapulco Expressway. While traveling by bus on the outskirts of Iguala, things went terribly wrong for a group of student activists. On the evening of September 26, 2014, 56 normalistas ranging in age from 18 to 23 commandeered five buses. This was nothing out of the ordinary. It was tradition for student activists to borrow commercial buses in Iguala to reach the nation's capital for public demonstrations. October 2nd marked the 46th anniversary of the student massacre Tate Loco when government agents opened fire on a peaceful protest of the Olympics. To this day, the body count remains uncertain. Several hundred were killed or injured. For years, the government covered up its involvement in the massacre. Every year on the anniversary, students from all over the country march in the Tate Loco section of Mexico City to commemorate the lives lost. When the 56 students initially left Ayotzinapa, they were crammed into two buses. Since Iguala was on the way to the capital, the plan was to borrow three more buses from Iguala's bus station to take them to Mexico City. They arrived in Iguala just before an annual conference held by the National System of Family Development, which focuses on the welfare of Mexican families in need. The local chapter's president at the time was Maria de los Angeles Piñera Villa, wife of the Iguala mayor. She was set to announce her own bid for mayor the next day at a political rally. This seemingly arbitrary detail would play a major factor in the missing persons investigation. In Iguala, the students also hoped to solicit funds to cover the costs of refueling several buses. While the modestly-sized city was only 20 minutes outside of Mexico City, from their college town, the trip took over six hours. In normal circumstances, they could have shaved 20 minutes off their travel time by driving through Chilpancingo, but routes from there to the capital were blocked by state and federal officials. It seemed like fate was steering them toward Iguala. As planned, The normalistas seized the extra buses, but they ran into trouble at an intersection on the way out of town. Just after 9 p.m., a group of municipal police officers blocked the road. Several students exited the buses and tried to reason with the officers. Without hesitation, the officers opened fire. What happened next still remains somewhat of a mystery. Out of 56 students, 43 would never be seen or heard from again. When news of the mass disappearance broke, the students' loved ones were in denial, grief-stricken, and angry. The general public grew fearful. Parents who had sons enrolled in the Ayotzinapa program took them back home. In the weeks that followed, only 22 students out of the 140 remained on campus. There were many unanswered questions about what happened on September 26th. While some answers would emerge in time, many details of that night remain shrouded in mystery. Right off the bat, the number of people missing made this case stand out. According to the New York Times, at the time of the disappearance, Guerrero State had the highest homicide rate in the nation. Reports of disappearances in Mexico were commonplace. Since late 2006, the Mexican government has been engaged in a seemingly endless battle with the country's drug cartels. Nearly 16 years have passed since Mexico's drug war began, and violent crime rates continue to rise. While notorious drug lords like El Chapo have the blood of thousands of people on their hands, make no mistake, the United States has played a nefarious role in all of this. According to an April 2021 report from CNN, Mexican drug cartels take in between 19 million and 29 billion dollars annually from drug sales in the US. It's a simple case of supply and demand augmented by America's opioid crisis. But this arrangement comes with a cost beyond addiction. Innocent people are paying with their lives and yet others simply vanish. According to human rights organization, the Washington Office on Latin America, or WOLA, between 2018 and 2020, there were over 23,000 people listed in Mexico's national registry of the disappeared. Many of those declared missing are presumed victims of gang violence, but less than a third of Mexico's missing persons cases are currently under investigation powerful drug trafficking enterprises derive a great deal of power from the complicity of government and law enforcement connections. This widespread corruption, hidden in plain sight, has made citizens distrustful of the Mexican government. All of this said, efforts are being made to get the ball rolling on social change. As of August 2021, WOLA has launched a new campaign to address what they call gaps between legislation and reality. As referenced on their website, WOLA found that the sheer volume of missing persons reflects a real gap between disappearance victims and criminal investigations. The Ayotzinapa 43 case outraged Mexican citizens who were already fed up with a history of government corruption. In the weeks and months that followed, there were public demonstrations all over the country. As frustrations over government inaction grew, many protests turned violent. According to an article in The Guardian, a crowd of restless protesters threw stones at the window of the governor's offices in the state capital of Chilpancingo. According to The Atlantic, the Guerrero State Capitol building was set ablaze in mid-October before riot police intervened. The trend of attacking government buildings continued through November. When an investigation was launched for the missing students, the public, of course, was skeptical about getting any concrete answers from authorities. Friends and family of the Normalistas hoped that somehow, some way, their loved ones would be found alive. The investigation would turn out to be an uphill battle, full of twists and turns. Some details uncovered would further tarnish citizens' already low opinion of law enforcement. Before an official investigation even began, it became clear to authorities they were not dealing with a typical missing persons case. The incident was immediately classified and enforced disappearance the act of making someone disappear suddenly against their will. One day after the students went missing, a grim discovery was made. On September 27th, the mutilated body of 22-year-old Julio Cesar Mandragón Fontes was found on a dirt road in an industrial area less than a mile from the police ambush. He hadn't gone down without a fight. An autopsy revealed extensive injuries, indicating that he had tried to defend himself against assailants. The condition of his body was horrific. One of his eyes had been barbarically ripped out, and the skin on his face was peeled back. Investigators found the young student's injuries indicative of torture. According to the autopsy report cited by CNN, There were 64 fractures in 40 bones all over his body, including 13 fractured bones in his face. He had been so badly mutilated, the only ways to identify him were the scars on his hands and the black scarf found wrapped around his neck. It had been a gift from his wife, who was now widowed and left to raise their infant daughter all on her own. Another body, later identified as 18-year-old Daniel Solis, was found close to the intersection where the buses were stopped. The first-year student was shot in the back and killed. Mondragon and Solis were not counted among the 43 missing because their bodies were immediately identified. While their families had the advantage of getting answers, the other families were mystified over what this meant for their loved ones. Other victims found at the intersection included three journalists and three bystanders, eight dead victims in total. The killings prompted an investigation by the Guerrero State's Attorney General, Jesus Murillo Caram. A few weeks later, on October 5th, the Office of Mexico's Federal Attorney General opened its own investigation. The federal office worked in collaboration with the Argentinian Forensic Anthropology Team. With several government entities pulled into the investigation, a weary public hoped the events of September 26 could soon be pieced together. At around 9 o'clock the night of the incident, an on-call medic at Iguala General Hospital contacted the city's Iguala's public ministry office. He called to inform them that he was treating several young students Who were reportedly injured during a police ambush. With this information, the office was legally obligated to initiate an investigation. Many people would later argue the investigation was sabotaged from the beginning. There was the government's version of events, referred to as the historical version, and then there was what actually happened. Rumors swirled almost immediately about the local government's role in the ambush. This speculation began to gain some traction when Iguala mayor Jose Luis Arbaca and his wife went into hiding on October 1st, just a few days after the incident. Terms like gut health have become mainstream But guess what? Your current probiotic is lying to you. The truth is, many probiotics aren't surviving the trip to your colon. Seed's Daily Symbiotic has solved that problem with its Viacap delivery technology, which is made to survive bile salts, stomach acid, and enzymes to be sure it reaches your colon. Two-thirds of Americans suffer from digestive discomfort, which can be in the form of prolonged fullness and bloating. Seed's Daily Symbiotic is effective in supporting your GI function, skin and heart health, gut immune function, and more. Many people who've taken Seed's Daily Symbiotic have noticed improved digestion within 24 to 48 hours, which can include bowel movement regularity and eased bloating. My husband has been taking Seed for the last few weeks, and he has noticed a positive difference in his digestion, more so than when he was drinking kombucha. The truth is that not all probiotics are created equal. The kombucha he was drinking, while nutritious, didn't actually qualify as a probiotic according to science. Start a new healthy habit today. Visit seed.com murderish and use code murderish to redeem 20% off your first month of Seed's daily symbiotic. That's seed.com murderish and use code murderish. Most of our diets are lacking vitamin D, especially for women aged 19 to 50. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin was made by extensive research to fill gaps in nutrition for women ages 18 plus. Ritual's multivitamin supports brain, bone, and blood health, and you can be sure it's effective due to the gold-standard university-led clinical trials this multivitamin has gone through in order to prove its impact. As published in the leading scientific journal, Frontiers in Nutrition, results of those trials showed that Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. I've replaced my previous vitamin D and omega-3 supplements with Ritual's multivitamin not only because of the impressive clinical trials results, but also because it doesn't include any shady ingredients. And I know this because Ritual is committed to third-party testing from USP and the non-GMO project. Right now, Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off your first three months. Visit Ritual.com Murderish and turn healthy habits into a ritual. That's 10% off at Ritual.com Murderish. CBD is all the rage, but do you know how your CBD is made? Papa and Barclay's award-winning CBD solutions for pain, stress, sleep, and everyday wellness is made with a clean, chemical-free, whole plant process with proven results. It's hard to see a loved one in pain because the negative effects are so apparent and sometimes debilitating. That's how Papa and Barclay's CBD solutions was born. Adam Grossman, founder of the company, created the groundbreaking CBD relief balm to ease his father's back pain. My husband and I use Papa and Barkley CBD on a weekly basis. He uses the sleep relief oil to sleep better and I use the relief balm to ease muscle pain after a strength workout. I'm such a sucker for a pretty box or bottle, which is another reason I love Papa and Barkley. Their packaging is luxe and it stands out from other CBD brands. After creating the relief balm, Papa and Barclay's line was expanded to include topical balms, oils, tinctures, and capsules, all made with 100% natural clean ingredients and whole plant full-spectrum CBD. Papa and Barclay is the number one cannabis wellness company in California, and they can ship their new CBD relief line nationwide. Papa and Barkley is on a mission to improve lives through CBD in its purest, cleanest form possible. Go to papaandbarkleycbd.com murderish for 20% off your first purchase. That's 20% off for new customers at P-A-P-A and B-A-R-K-L-E-Y cbd.com murderish. Shockingly. It had been theorized that municipal police officers were acting on orders from the mayor himself when they intercepted the students. Perhaps the normalistas were targeted because their demonstration would pull attention away from the mayor's wife. To the families of the 43, however, this did not add up. Witnesses said officers fired indiscriminately at the buses, injuring seven students on board. Three people not connected to the Normalistas also died that day. Officers at the scene mistakenly fired at a bus transporting a local soccer team, killing one of the players and the bus driver. One woman traveling by taxi was also killed when a bullet ricocheted off the soccer team's bus. In all, 25 people were injured from the first attack. Another attack followed. This time, masked assailants arrived with automatic weapons. It's likely that is when Julio Cesar Mondragón and Daniel Solis were killed, along with another student named Julio Cesar Ramirez-Nava. Investigators blamed the string of violent events on members of the Guerreros Unidos cartel. The gang is mostly known for trafficking narcotics, but also has a history of kidnapping, murder, and extortion. State and federal officials are aware that Iguala is a major hub for the drug trade. The cartel often uses commercial buses to smuggle large quantities of heroin into the U.S. Investigators began to wonder whether it was possible that the Normalistas mistakenly took one of the cartel's drug-running buses. At the site of the disappearance, physical evidence pointed to a white bus being the primary target. Mexican journalist and author Annabel Hernandez mentioned in her 2018 book, Massacre in Mexico, there were bullet holes near this bus's windows and wheels, indicating officers had tried to render the bus immobile. Pools of blood were spotted near the driver's seat, down the aisle, and in some passenger seats. The initial investigation would later fall under scrutiny due to crucial evidence being mislabeled and there were other signs of extreme negligence in forensic protocol. On September 28, two days after the disappearance, a forensic expert sent from the state prosecutor's office failed to collect blood samples at the scene, evidence that may have proved valuable in identifying some of the students. Another source of public criticism was how long it took Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto to even acknowledge the missing 43. Adding insult to injury, Peña Nieto had been elected on his campaign promise of a safer, more prosperous Mexico. The faith of Peña Nieto's people was writing on how he handled the latest national tragedy. His delayed response to the Ayotzinapa 43 did nothing to restore faith. A week and a half after the incident, the president made a televised speech. According to Amnesty International, he said, Mexican society and the families of the young students who are sadly missing rightly demand clarification of the facts and that justice is done. President Peña Nieto's words did little to comfort apprehensive citizens. Two days after his speech, thousands of students marched in Mexico City to demand the missing students be found. With pressure mounting, Attorney General Mario Karam took four suspects into custody on October 10th. A week later, arrests were made on a grander scale. According to Amnesty International, the arrests included 36 municipal police officers from Iguala and the nearby town of Cocula, 17 members of criminal gangs, along with Cidronio Casarubia Salgado, an alleged leader of the Guerreros Unidos. Though the arrests appeared to be progress in the case, investigators did not seem any closer to establishing what happened that September night. In October and November, it seemed there was more progress in the investigation as 60 mass graves containing more than 120 bodies were unearthed in the areas surrounding Iguala. Tragically, After undergoing forensic testing, only two of the missing students were identified from bone fragments. It's difficult to consider how many bodies in those pits could be linked to decades-old cold cases. October 22nd brought a major announcement in the missing students' case. The attorney general confirmed a widely held theory. The mayor of Iguala had ordered the attack. On November 4th, nearly six weeks after the disappearances, the mayor and his wife were apprehended. Both were sent to maximum security prisons where they remain today. The next day, Attorney General Murillo Karam held a press conference to outline the government's version of events. According to BBC News, Murillo Karam stated the Iguala mayor ordered local police to get rid of the students by any means, out of concern they would disrupt his wife's event. The students were then turned over to the cartel, who misidentified them as members of a rival gang and massacred them. This narrative was not accepted as truth by everyone. It drew skepticism from students' relatives who were still clinging to hope that their loved ones were still alive. One point that had not been investigated was the possibility that soldiers at a nearby military base were involved in the attacks. Soldiers of the 27th Infantry Battalion had been deemed off-limits by the government from the beginning of the investigation. Only federal prosecutors were given access to them, which seemed counterintuitive to Mexican citizens, who were already suspicious of government complicity. An anonymous, high-ranking military source told the Daily Beast, The army hides information because it's in their best interest to do so. The whole world knows that the army controls the drug trade in that part of Mexico. The army destroys anyone or anything that gets in their way. They work with organized crime to protect their own objectives. Families of the disappeared mostly focused on one particular statement made by the attorney general. According to The Guardian, toward the end of the press conference, Attorney General Murillo Karam said to reporters, Yame Kanse. The phrase, which in English roughly translates to enough already, I'm tired, became popular as a rallying cry on social media. People all over the world used the hashtag in support of the Aotsunapa 43. Mexican filmmaker Natalia Beresteyn was one among hundreds of public figures who showed support by using the hashtag Yame on YouTube. As quoted in The Guardian, she responded to the Attorney General's wariness by saying, Señor Murillo Caram, I too am tired. I'm tired of vanished Mexicans, of the killing of women, of the dead, of the decapitated, of the bodies hanging from bridges, of broken families, of mothers without children, of children without fathers. I am tired of the political class that has kidnapped my country, and of the class that corrupts, that lies, that kills. I, too, am tired. Soon, another hashtag caught on. Todos somos Ayotzinapa. We are all Ayotzinapa. The phrase signified this case was not just about the missing students, it was about solidarity. Manuel Martinez, a spokesperson for the families of the 43, believed the use of these hashtags not only stood for unity, but it also meant the demand for answers was gaining strength. Martinez remarked to The Guardian, The people are angered, and I hope that they continue to support us. So-called advances in the investigation kept appearing in the international news. On November 7th, government officials claimed their investigation revealed the missing students had been killed by members of the cartel who burned their bodies at a local dump site and tossed their ashes into a nearby river. This information emerged from testimony given by several detained members of the Guerreros Unidos. But families of the missing did not believe this theory and insisted the investigation needed to continue. Several days later, on November 12th, government representatives and the victim's families signed an agreement to have a team of experts serve on the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. This panel would assist in continued efforts to solve the case. On November 20th, 2014, Another protest was organized in Mexico City, this time involving more than half a million people. According to Amnesty International, President Peña Nieto turned on his people, accusing protesters of trying to destabilize the state. But those involved reiterated they just wanted to know the truth about the normalistas. In response, the president established a 10-step reform plan. As cited by Amnesty International, This plan led to the creation of 32 state-level police forces and the elimination of over 1,800 municipal police teams that may have been compromised by connections to organized crime. While this action conveyed positive intent, it addressed the incidents of future crimes, not the thousands of people already reported missing. The season changed from fall to winter, and with that came a glimmer of hope. In December, the Argentinian anthropology team, along with the federal attorney general, confirmed that one of the remains found in a mass grave was genetically linked to one of the 43 students. Bone fragments were linked to 19-year-old Alexander Mora. According to an article in The Atlantic, experts serving on the commission stated the chain of evidence had been broken so they couldn't be sure about the narrative of the victims' bodies being burned at a Kokula dump site. Disappointing news continued to roll in. In early February of 2015, a number of police officers and gang members who had been detained accused investigators of torturing them. This brought allegations of false confessions, prompting the release of critical suspects. Because their testimony was given under duress, It was now considered unreliable. Among those set free was El Gil, the nickname given to Cidronio Casarubia Salgado, second in command of the Guerreros Unidos. It was a major setback in identifying those responsible for the enforced disappearance. On February 7th, the Argentinian forensic team publicly challenged the initial theory of the students' bodies being burned. The experts believed this assessment had been premature. None of the bodies found at the Kokula trash site had been linked to the missing 43. The Inter-American Commission on Human Rights released a report corroborating the fallacies, stating there was little evidence to support the government's theories. In April of 2015, more flaws were exposed in the investigation. The government's theory relied solely on accounts of those first detained, while the testimony of two bus drivers and a soccer player at the scene was disregarded. It's likely their statements did not align with the Attorney General's narrative. In addition, the government had neglected to analyze clothing found at the site for DNA evidence. The clothes were finally examined by the Commission in late July, nearly a year after the crime occurred. Over time, the investigation seemed to slow to a crawl. With no new leads, the case received less news coverage, especially by international media. The families of the missing refused to give up. Since that fateful September night in 2014, several parents used what little money they had to travel into Mexico City once a month. Joined by supporters, the bereaved marched outside federal buildings carrying photographs of their missing sons. One mother, Nisa Nora Garcia Gonzalez, lost her 18-year-old son that night. She was quoted by the New York Times as saying, "...the boys aren't missing. They were taken by people in uniform. They know where they left them, they just refuse to tell us." This was a commonly held theory developed by parents of the 43. Early on, they speculated that soldiers had abducted the young men and taken them to a remote place in the mountains of Guerrero, where they were forced into labor. The fact that state officials had been denied access to the military base near Iguala only strengthened suspicions of soldiers being involved in the disappearance. Several parents started traveling around Mexico to raise continued support for their cause and reignite pressure on the government to keep the investigation going. Others had lost all faith in Mexican authorities. For the first two years following the disappearance, 12 family members traveled across the U.S. in hopes of provoking further action. In January of 2016, four of the families arrived in Minneapolis. According to the Star Tribune, the crowd lobbied the Mexican consul there to accept responsibility and publicly declare that the abduction and killing of the students was a criminal action perpetrated by the government. With many Mexican immigrants scattered across America, the families hoped spreading awareness would prompt local and federal politicians to renounce the widespread violence in Mexico there were definite signs of support in the U.S. In November of 2016, the two-year anniversary of the mass disappearance, a performing arts theater in McAllen, Texas, known as Cine El Rey, held an event called Todos Unidos por Ayotzinapa, or Everyone United for Ayotzinapa. The event, which featured poetry readings, music, and art in support of the 43 students, was organized by Edna Ochoa, Assistant Professor of Latino Literature at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. Ochoa told CNN, In a way, this is to raise awareness about the problems that are happening in Mexico, and that could happen anywhere. Most of all, we need to raise awareness that there are forced disappearances that should not be happening, and that the government under President Enrique Peña Nieto is under complete impunity. Filmmaker Sergio Garcia, who attended the event, told the Brownsville Herald, I believe this is important because in order to feel human, you need to become involved in events where frightening things happen. We are the ones who can foster change, not anyone else. Many people do not remember anymore. This situation happened two years ago, and we cannot let it fade away. We need to keep the pressure on, and we need to keep supporting the parents. Imagine being in their shoes. The Cine El Rey event was highly publicized, with some of the more outspoken parents quoted by international media. When a reporter from the Brownsville Herald asked the father of 22-year-old César Manuel González about potential repercussions of public demonstrations, he replied, We don't know what the political cost of our efforts is, but we do not care. We, the 43 parents, keep on fighting. And if we have to raise hell, We will raise hell, and we'll continue this way, fighting. One parent, Felipe de la Cruz, stood in unity with the families, even though he did not have a missing family member. His son had narrowly escaped being abducted along with his classmates. De la Cruz told the Brownsville Herald, The international scrutiny for the towns in Mexico is very important. The pressure that our government receives due to protests from cities around the U.S. and the rest of the world has caused the Mexican government to operate the way it should. José Antonio Tizapa Legateno, father of one of the missing, organized his own unofficial event, a 10-mile race held in New York City known as Running for Ayotzinapa. A growing number of runners and activists have participated in the annual event since 2014, with smaller events sprouting up in Central Park and Brooklyn's Prospect Park. The races are unofficial, participants' run times aren't logged, and there is technically no finish line. According to Medium.com, runners are greeted with bowls of pozole, tamales, and pan The event traditionally ends with volunteers and participants singing the Mexico National Anthem and counting to 43 in remembrance of the missing. As quoted by Medium in September 2020, the Zapa Legedeno addressed the crowd that year by saying, For the last six years, we haven't heard from our children, and here we are fighting and demanding their return. This is a revolution without weapons. This is a revolution carried on with your legs and hearts. On December 1, 2018, a new Mexican president took office, Andres Manuel López Obrador. Citizens hoped a new administration would advocate for a more thorough investigation, and the new president delivered. Within hours of holding office, he took steps to fulfill his campaign promise of exposing the truth about the missing 43. According to Al Jazeera, in his first presidential decree, President López Obrador ordered the formation of a new commission that would be tasked with starting a new investigation from scratch. The Truth and Justice Commission was made up of the students' parents and their lawyers, representatives from the Interior, Foreign, and Finance Ministries, and investigative experts. During the event announcing the new commission, Maria Martinez, the mother of one of the missing, spoke on behalf of the families. According to Al Jazeera, she told President Lopez Obrador, there are families suffering because they have lost someone. It's difficult to see an empty chair, an empty bed without a child. You need to win our trust. We don't trust anyone, but we have a bit of faith. You set an example of someone who perseveres. It's a good example. A new investigation was soon underway. This time, investigators were promised unlimited government resources and access to anyone they had cause to interview. 2020 seemed to bring some friendships to their breaking point. Frustrations over opposing political views and world issues were heightened. And if you're like me, arguments over these topics seem to go in circles. Talkspace offers a neutral person for you to talk to about anything from fractured friendships, depression, anxiety, intimate partner relationship issues, and more. Talkspace has been such a great tool for me and they make it so convenient to speak with a licensed therapist, you can do it from home via live video sessions or even by text message. It's really easy to access your Talkspace therapist and schedule sessions, and the interactions are very professional. Talkspace has thousands of licensed therapists available for you to match with. You can even get a prescription for your medication if need be. If you need a little support to help you through the end of the year or you want to start building towards a better upcoming year, Talkspace is here to help. Match with a licensed therapist when you go to Talkspace.com and get $100 off your first month with the promo code MURDERISH. That's $100 off when you use code MURDERISH at Talkspace.com. My friends Aaron and Justin host a true crime podcast that I know you'll get hooked on. Generation Y is a true original in the greater true crime podcast landscape. If you're into hearing about true crime and unsolved murder cases, Generation Y will have you hitting the follow button so fast. In each riveting episode, Aaron and Justin break down theories, dive deep into forensic evidence, and express their opinions on perplexing cases like the case of Jason Corbett, who was killed by his wife Molly's father, who beat him with a baseball bat after he heard the couple arguing. On that fateful night in 2015, Molly's father, Tom, claimed to have seen Jason strangling Molly during their argument, which prompted the fight between Tom and Jason. Jason was left dead with a caved-in skull. Questions loomed afterward. Did Tom act in self-defense Or was this a planned murder? Listen to the Generation Y podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. You guys know by now just how much I enjoy playing Best Fiends. I cannot put the game down. I've been playing even more lately as kind of a break from all of the holiday stress. While I play, I get hooked on the storyline as it progresses. All of the cute fiends I can collect and the fun and challenging puzzles along the way. Best Fiends is the best puzzle game I've played because it keeps me engaged and entertained. Oftentimes we go camping where the Wi-Fi isn't so great, but I can still play Best Fiends because the offline mode allows me to play without Wi-Fi. There are so many levels to this game, and new levels are added constantly. Trust me, there's always a new level to conquer when you need a fun mental pick-me-up. Whenever I hit a wall while writing scripts, I grab my phone and play Best Fiends to refresh my brain and get a little me-time in, too. Recently, I stood in line for an hour waiting for the Thanksgiving meal we ordered, and it went by so fast because I played Best Fiends the whole time. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. For nearly a year, progress made by the Truth and Justice Commission was not publicly announced. In September of 2020, President López Obrador reaffirmed his support for the families in a press conference. According to CNN, he said, This is a state issue. We're committed to solving the case and we're making progress towards that goal. It's a commitment we have with the parents and the Mexican people. A few days later, the president held a public ceremony with the families where he apologized for all they had endured. As quoted by CNN, he called the disappearances a great injustice committed by the state. That same month, federal charges were made against six former officials. One of the officials was Thomas Serón, former director of the Criminal Investigation Agency under the Peña Nieto administration. According to human rights organization Justice in Mexico, Seron was accused of tampering with evidence, forcibly disappearing potential witnesses, and using torture to obtain testimony. Unfortunately, as of October 2021, Ceron has evaded capture by hiding out in Israel. According to Political Mexico, while he is not protected by officials there, requests for Ceron to be extradited have been denied. The Israeli government stated no extradition treaty exists between Mexico and Israel. The ambassador of Israel's Ministry of Justice is currently reviewing the case file, but in the meantime, Seron remains at large. The public's hope for resolution swelled with a new discovery years into the investigation. The remains of two additional students were identified. Christian Alfonso Rodriguez Telumbre, and Josevani Guerrero de la Cruz. Both sets of remains were found in locations different from the alleged crime scene, confirming the string of lies laid out by the former administration. The deep probe into public figures continued. Unlike his predecessors, President López Obrador's actions proved he was intent on getting new leads in the case, even if it meant going against his own principles. The center-left populist president, who still holds office at the time of this recording, has always been a fervent supporter of the military. Implicating military personnel in the enforced disappearance would counter his political stance. President López Obrador's willingness to prioritize the pursuit of justice over his political leanings established public confidence. Over the years since the investigation started, The focus on multi-level corruption has led to a high degree of public suspicion, which was not unfounded. Former Secretary of Defense General Salvador Cienfuegos had assured investigators that there was no military presence in Iguala when the deadly events unfolded. This was later revealed to be untrue. In fact, it was Cienfuegos who denied requests made by investigators to question military personnel. Cienfuegos was never prosecuted in Mexico. However, in October 2020, he was arrested by DEA agents in Los Angeles. The United States Drug Enforcement Administration charged him with collusion, organized crime, and money laundering. But before Cienfuegos could stand trial, the Mexican government threatened to restrict the DEA's operations in Mexico if Cienfuegos was not released no charges have ever been filed against him by the Mexican government. Unbelievably, they exonerated him. In November of 2020, Captain Jose Martinez Crespo of the 27th Infantry Battalion had the distinction of being the first high-ranking military officer arrested in connection with the Ayotzinapa 43. Finally, Authorities were not just targeting low-level officials like they did during the first investigation. According to Animal Politico, the arrest warrant for the military captain was issued for organized crime with the purpose of committing crimes against health. Captain Martinez Crespo did not necessarily play a direct role in the mass disappearance, but he was on patrol with a group of soldiers in Iguala the night of the crime. He faces criminal charges from the federal attorney general for allegedly being on the payroll of the Guerreros Unidos cartel. Two months after the warrant for his arrest was issued, Martinez Crespo surrendered to a military prison. His defense team argued the charges were based on the sole testimony of a protected witness. The case against him was compromised in January of 2021 when a leading Mexican newspaper called Reforma leaked statements made by this witness. The witness, who was referred to as Juan in the Reforma article, claimed the military was directly involved in the student's disappearance. As a suspected leader of the Guerreros Unidos, Juan had intimate knowledge of the operation that night, which he said involved military, police, and the cartel. According to Mexico News Daily, he said members of the Guerreros Unidos were seeking out members of a rival gang that owed them money. It was suspected the rival gang members were interspersed with the Ayotzinapa students. Juan went on to say the students were divided into three groups. One group was abducted by the cartel, another was placed in police custody, and the third group was transported to an army base. The latter group was interrogated and then handed off to the gang. Anyone who was still alive was killed, and the bodies were dissolved in acid so their liquid remains could be poured down a drain. According to Juan, any other remaining survivors were slaughtered with axes and machetes at an Iguala cartel hideout. Along with his account of the mass murders, Juan admitted dirty cops had planted evidence like cremated ashes and bullet casings at the dump in Cocula. He said the cover-up was done to support the government's narrative. President López Obrador confirmed the leak's validity. As quoted by NBC News, he said, What Reforma published is in the prosecutor's file. I don't know how they obtained it, but it's real. He went on to stress the importance of unveiling facts In the year-long investigation by saying it's not about coming up with another sham another false version just to say the case is closed the most important thing is to find the young men it's quite a challenge but we have the will to do it shortly after the article was published defense secretary luis crescencio sandoval had no choice but to respond he intended to ensure the military cooperated with the new investigation telling La Prensa Latina, In all that pertains to what's coming to light about Ayotzinapa, we're providing information. We have the obligation to do so." A few weeks after the reforma leak, another high-ranking official was taken into custody. Luis Antonio Durantes Macias was head of the federal police station in Iguala when the students went missing. The former officer is being held in prison for his role in the aggravated enforced disappearance. As mentioned in Proceso magazine, the Attorney General's office has evidence that shows he knew about the students being detained in two places as it was happening. In May of 2021, President Lopez Obrador sought the help of the United States. He met with Vice President Kamala Harris to request an open line of communication with the U.S. Department of Justice, which continues to investigate the Guerreros Unidos for drug trafficking charges. The DOJ handed over their case file on the cartel, hoping the information they've gathered could assist in the Ayotzinapa case. The biggest break in the case came in October of 2021, Mexico's Federal Interior Ministry released transcripts of text messages exchanged on the night of September 26, 2014, between Iguala's deputy police chief and a regional leader of the Guerreros Unidos known as El Gil. The transcripts make it crystal clear who called the shots in Iguala. Francisco Salgado Valladeres, who served as deputy chief of the municipal police force, texted El Gil that he had instructed his officers to arrest two groups of students for stealing the buses. Salgado wrote that 21 students were also in his custody, and El Gil arranged a transfer point. According to the Daily Beast, El Gil spoke in code when he texted Salgado saying he had beds to terrorize the students in, most likely referencing his plans to torture and bury them in scattered mass graves. The deputy police chief continued to inform Lopez about additional students his force captured. According to the Daily Beast, Salgado spoke in code by saying, "...all packages have been delivered." which could be a reference to the heroine suspected of being on board one of the student's buses. Mike Vigil, the DEA's former chief of international operations, remarked to the Daily Beast about the leak. The new evidence that has come to light regarding the Ayotzinapa case cracks it wide open and provides irrefutable proof of who was involved in the student massacre. He went on to say the new information is like a Hollywood movie, but the events are real. They involve collusion between the police, army, organized crime, and a massive cover-up by the Mexican government. According to the Latin Times, in exchange for protecting the drug cartel, Salgado received a monthly payment of nearly 40000 in U.S. dollars. This illustrates why the power of Mexican cartels extends to the highest levels of law enforcement. Municipal police officers make such a modest income, it's proven difficult for them to turn down the great sums of money crime syndicates are equipped to offer. It will remain difficult to end corruption in Mexico until the issue of poverty is addressed. Former Deputy Chief Salgado was arrested in 2015, but no updates have been publicly released. El Gill was captured and taken into custody in September of 2015, but he was released over a violation of due process under suspicions he was tortured. El Gill remains at large. Hey, you guys, I've got your next podcast binge. The number one true crime hit, Lost Hills, is back now with its second season, Dead in the Water. Lost Hills Season 2 takes us back to the late 70s, early 80s in Malibu, California. At that time, the quiet beach town was transforming into a celebrity haven full of new money and hard drugs. In 1981, a Malibu woman and her son mysteriously drowned while sailing off the coast. Her husband was arrested for their murders, but to this day, even the victim's family claims he's innocent. It's a wild story. I'm really into it and I know you will be too. Get ready for one of the best stories of the year. Find Lost Hills wherever you get your podcasts. There has been some notable progress made in the Ayotzinapa 43 case under the current administration, but is it enough? Arrests have been made and a few of the students have been identified but very few suspects have been successfully prosecuted in the seven long years that have passed. It's hard to grasp the amount of suffering endured by the Normalistas' families. They have missed seven birthdays, seven Christmases, seven years of memories that could have been created if the students had never boarded those buses. How can you cure seven years of devastation? of yearning to know what transpired on a night that changed so many lives. The students were just innocents ensnared in a web of corruption that has gone on for far too long. At the time of this recording, countless drug cartels still have the Mexican government in their back pockets. How many more presidents like Lopez Obrador will be bold enough to take a stand against corruption before every victim of the 43 is found. And what about the thousands of others seeking some sense of closure for the death of their loved ones? According to Mexico's search commission, nearly 100,000 people have gone missing in Mexico since 1964. The story of the Ayotzinapa 43 is not really an anomaly. It's more of an expose on a nation in crisis. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. I'm going to be at CrimeCon in Las Vegas next year. Visit CrimeCon.com to purchase your badge and use promo code MURDERISH for 10% off a standard badge. I really hope to see you there. That's CrimeCon.com. Use code MURDERISH for 10% off. If you have 60 seconds of free time, do me the biggest favor and give Murderish a five-star rating and review in your favorite podcast app. Positive ratings and reviews help new listeners find the show. Also, follow me on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. It's my favorite place to engage with you guys. You can also find me on Twitter and Facebook. Check out Murderish.com if you want to buy Murderish t-shirts, face masks, coffee mugs, and more. If you want more Murderish content, go to Murderish.com and click the link to go behind the scenes and become a Patreon subscriber. Patreon subscribers get immediate access to bonus content and other perks as well. Thank you, Pauline M. and Katie K. for becoming Patreon subscribers. I appreciate you both a lot. Murderish Sound Design and Audio Editing is by Justin Hellstrom. Some of the music was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Allison Schwartz. Visit Murderish.com for a list of sources used for this episode. As always, ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast does not make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.